0: Will Lantry succeed in creating an army of living dead? Ray Bradbury, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you we really try to make your support worth your while. You get so much out of this. For a $5 monthly donation, you get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook download. Give more and you get more. It kind of cracks open the website for you so you can easily build out your classic audiobook library and you help to give more folks like you the chance to discover the classics in a curated and easily accessible format. Go to classictalesaudiobooks.com today and become a financial supporter. You'll be glad you did. Thank you so much. If it's more convenient, we are streaming our episodes through YouTube now. A link can be found in the comments section for today's episode. App users can hear a reading of The Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe. In the special feature section for today's episode the story is referenced several times in today's story as well as many works by Ambrose Bierce and HP Lovecraft today's story was originally released in the summer issue of planet stories in 1948 last week William Lantry awoke from his coffin in a graveyard he was dead yet he could move and speak The year was 2348 or so, and he'd been dead around 350 years. The new world had no graveyards, and all bodies were burned in a great incinerator, which made a pillar of fire to the heavens. Along with the graveyards, fear, superstition, and macabre imagination were also sterilized in this new world. Solantri came up with a plan to destroy the incinerators and create an army of living, dead friends. And now, Pillar of Fire, part two of two, by Ray Bradbury. It was like the 4th of July, the biggest damned firecracker of them all. The Science Port incinerator split down the middle and flew apart. It made a thousand small explosions that ended with a greater one. It fell upon the town and crushed houses and burned trees. It woke people from sleep and then put them to sleep again, forever, an instant later. William Lantry, sitting in a beetle that was not his own, tuned idly to a station on the audio dial. The collapse of the incinerator had killed some 400 people. Many had been caught in flattened houses, others struck by flying metal. A temporary morgue was being set up, but an address was given. Lantry noted it with a pad and pencil. He could go on this way, he thought, from town to town, from country to country destroying the burners, the pillars of fire, until the whole clean, magnificent framework of flame and cauterization was tumbled. He made a fair estimate. Each explosion averaged 500 dead. He could work that up to 100,000 in no time. He pressed the floor stud of the beetle. Smiling, he drove off through the dark streets of the city. the city coroner had requisitioned an old warehouse. From midnight until four in the morning, the gray beetles hissed down the rain-shiny streets, turned in, and the bodies were laid out on the cold concrete floors, with white sheets over them. It was a continuous flow until about 4.30, then it stopped. There were about 200 bodies there, white and cold. The bodies were left alone. Nobody stayed behind to tend them. There was no use tending the dead. It was a useless procedure. The dead could take care of themselves. About five o'clock, with a touch of dawn in the east, the first trickle of relatives arrived to identify their sons or their fathers, or their mothers or their uncles. The people moved quickly into the warehouse, made the identification, moved quickly out again. By six o'clock, with the sky still lighter in the east, this trickle had passed on also. William Lantry walked across the wide wet street and entered the warehouse. He held a piece of blue chalk in one hand. He walked by the coroner who stood in the entranceway talking to two others. Drive the bodies to the incinerator in Mellontown tomorrow. The voices faded. Lantry moved, his feet echoing faintly on the cool concrete. A wave of sourceless relief came to him as he walked among the shrouded figures. He was among his own, and better than that, by God, he had created these. He had made them dead. He had procured for himself a vast number of recumbent friends. Was the coroner watching? Lantry turned his head. No. The warehouse was calm and quiet and shadowed in the dark morning. The coroner was walking away now, across the street with his two attendants. A beetle had drawn up on the other side of the street, and the coroner was going over to talk with whoever was in the beetle. William Lantry stood, and made a blue chalk pentagram on the floor by each of the bodies. He moved swiftly, swiftly, without a sound, without blinking. In a few minutes, glancing up now and then to see if the coroner was still busy, he had chalked the floor by a hundred bodies. He straightened up and put the chalk in his pocket. Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their party. Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their party. Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their party. Now is the time. Lying in the earth over the centuries, the processes and thoughts of passing peoples and passing times had seeped down to him slowly, as into a deep buried sponge, From some death memory in him now, ironically, repeatedly, a black typewriter clacked out black even lines of pertinent words. Now is the time for all good men, for all good men, to come to the aid of William Lantry. Other words, arise, my love, and come away the quick brown fox jumped over, paraphrase it, the quick risen body jumped over the tumbled incinerator. Lazarus, come forth from the tomb. He knew the right words. He need only speak them as they had been spoken over the centuries. He need only gesture with his hands and speak the words, the dark words, that would cause these bodies to quiver, rise, and walk. And when they had risen, he would take them through the town. They would kill others, and the others would rise and walk. By the end of the day, there would be thousands of good friends walking with him. And what of the naive, living people of this year, this day, this hour? They would be completely unprepared for it. They would go down to defeat because they would not be expecting war of any Sort, they wouldn't believe it possible. It would all be over before they could convince themselves that such an illogical thing could happen. He lifted his hands, his lips moved. He said the words. He began in a chanting whisper and then raised his voice, louder. He said the words again and again. His eyes were closed tightly, his body swayed. He spoke faster and faster, He began to move forward among the bodies. The dark words flowed from his mouth. He was enchanted with his own formulae. He stooped and made further blue symbols on the concrete, in the fashion of long dead sorcerers, smiling, confident. Any moment now, the first tremor of the still bodies. Any moment now, the rising, the leaping up of the cold ones. His hands lifted in the air, his head nodded, he spoke, he spoke. He spoke, he gestured, he talked loudly over the bodies, his eyes flaring, his body tensed. Now, he cried violently, rise, all of you. Nothing happened. Rise, he screamed with a terrible torment in his voice. The sheets lay in white blue shadow folds over the silent bodies. Hear me, and act, he shouted. Far away on the street, a beetle hissed along. Again, 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 he shouted, pleaded. He got down by each body and asked of it his particular violent favor. No reply. He strode wildly between the even white rows, flinging his arms up, stooping again and again to make blue symbols. Lantry was very pale. He licked his lips. Come on, get up, he said. They have, they always have, for a thousand years. When you make a mark, so, and speak a word, so, they always rise. Why not you, now? Why not you? Come on, come on! Before they come back. The warehouse went up into shadow. There were steel beams across and down. In it, under the roof, there was not a sound, except the raving of a lonely man. Lantry stopped. Through the wide doors of the warehouse, he caught a glimpse of the last cold stars of morning. This was the year 2349. His eyes grew cold, and his hands fell to his sides. He did not move. Once upon a time, people shuddered when they heard the wind about the house. Once people raised crucifixes and wolfbane, and believed in walking dead and bats and loping white wolves. And as long as they believed, then so long did the dead The bats, the loping wolves, exist. The mind gave birth and reality to them. But, he looked at the white sheeted bodies. These people did not believe. They had never believed. They would never believe. They had never imagined that the dead might walk. The dead went up flues in flame. They had never heard superstition, never trembled or shuddered or doubted in the dark. Walking dead people could not exist. They were illogical. This was the year 2349, man, after all. Therefore, these people could not rise, could not walk again. They were dead, and flat, and cold. Nothing, chalk, imprecation, superstition, could wind them up and set them walking. They were dead, and knew they were dead. He was alone. There were live people in the world, who moved and drove beetles and drank quiet drinks in little dimly illumined bars by country roads, and kissed women and talked much good talk all day and every day. But he was not alive. Friction gave him what little warmth he possessed. There were 200 dead people here in this warehouse now, cold upon the floor. The first dead people in a 100 years, who were allowed to be corpses for an extra hour or more. The first not to be immediately trundled to the incinerator and lit like so much phosphorus. He should be happy with them, among them. He was not. They were completely dead. They did not know nor believe in walking once the heart had paused and stilled itself. They were deader than dead ever was. He was indeed alone, more alone than any man had ever been. He felt the chill of his aloneness moving up into his chest, strangling him quietly. William Lantry turned suddenly and gasped. While he had stood there, someone had entered the warehouse. A tall man with white hair wearing a lightweight tan overcoat, and no hat. How long the man had been nearby, there was no telling. There was no reason to stay here. Lantry turned, and started to walk slowly out. He looked hastily at the man as he passed, and the man with the white hair looked back at him curiously. Had he heard? The imprecations, the pleadings, the shoutings, Did he suspect? Lantry slowed his walk. Had this man seen him make the blue chalk marks? But then, would he interpret them as symbols of an ancient superstition? Probably not. Reaching the door, Lantry paused. For a moment, he did not want to do anything but lie down and be coldly, really dead again and be carried silently down the street to some distant burning flue, and there dispatched in ash and whispering fire. If he was indeed alone, and there was no chance to collect an army to his cause, what then existed as a reason for going on? Killing? Yes, he'd kill a few thousand more, but that wasn't enough. You can only do so much of that before they drag you down. He looked at the cold sky. A rocket went across the black heaven, trailing fire. Mars burned red among a million stars. Mars. The library. The librarian. Talk. Returning rocket men. Tombs. Lantry almost gave a shout. He restrained his hand, which wanted so much to reach up into the sky and touch Mars. Lovely red star on the sky. Good star that gave him sudden new hope. If he had a living heart, now it would be thrashing wildly, and sweat would be breaking out of him, and his pulses would be stammering, and tears would be in his eyes. He would go down to wherever the rockets sprang up into space. He would go to Mars one way or another. He would go to the Martian tombs. There, there by God, were bodies. He would bet his last hatred on it, that would rise and walk and work with him. Theirs was an ancient culture, much different from that of Earth, patterned on the Egyptian. If what the librarian had said was true, and the Egyptian... What a crucible of dark superstition and midnight terror that culture had been. Mars it was then, beautiful Mars. But he must not attract attention to himself. He must move carefully. He wanted to run, yes, to get away. But that would be the worst possible move he could make. The man with the white hair was glancing at Lantry from time to time in the entranceway. There were too many people about. If anything happened, he would be outnumbered. So far, he had taken on only one man at a time. Lantry forced himself to stop and stand on the steps before the warehouse. The man with the white hair came on onto the steps also and stood, looking at the sky. He looked as if he was going to speak at any moment. He fumbled in his pockets took out a packet of cigarettes. Five. They stood outside the morgue together, the tall, pink, white-haired man and Lantry, hands in their pockets. It was a cool night, with a white shell of a moon that washed a house here, a road there, and further on, parts of a river. Cigarette? The man offered Lantry one. Thanks. They lit up together. The man glanced at Lantry's mouth. Cool night. Cool. They shifted their feet. Terrible accident. Terrible. So many dead. So many. Lantry felt himself some sort of delicate weight upon a scale. The other man did not seem to be looking at him but rather listening and feeling toward him. There was a feathery balance here that made for vast discomfort. He wanted to move away and get out from under this balancing weighing. The tall white-haired man said, My name's McClure. Did you have any friends inside? Asked Lantry. No. A casual acquaintance. Awful accident. Awful. They balanced each other. A beetle hissed by on the road with its seventeen tires whirling quietly. The moon showed a little town further over in the black hills. I say, said the man McClure, yes. Could you answer me a question? Be glad to. He loosened the knife in his coat pocket, ready. Is your name... Lantry, asked the man at last. Yes. William, Lantry, yes. Then you're the man who came out of the Salem graveyard day before yesterday, aren't you? Yes. Good Lord. I'm glad to meet you, Lantry. We've been trying to find you for the past 24 hours. The man seized his hand, pumped it, slapped him on the back. What? What? Said Lantry. Good Lord, man, why did you run off? Do you realize what an instance this is? We want to talk to you. McClure was smiling, glowing. Another handshake, another slap. I thought it was you. The man is mad, thought Lantry. Absolutely mad. Here I've toppled his incinerators, killed people, and he's shaking my hand. Mad, mad. Will you come along to the hall? Said the man taking his elbow. What hall? Lantry stepped back. The science hall, of course. It isn't every year we get a real case of suspended animation. In small animals, yes, but in a man? Hardly. Will you come? What's the act? demanded Lantry, glaring. What's all this talk? My dear fellow, what do you mean? The man was stunned. Never mind. Is that the only reason? You want to see me? What other reason would there be, Mr. Lantry? You don't know how glad I am to see you. He almost did a little dance. I suspected. When we were in there together, you being so pale and all, and then the way you smoked your cigarette. Something about it, and a lot of other things, all subliminal, but it is you, isn't it? It is you. It is I, William Lantry. Dryly. Good fellow. Come along. The beetle moved swiftly through the dawn streets. McClure talked rapidly. Lantry sat, listening, astounded. Here was this fool, McClure, playing his cards for him. Here was this stupid scientist or whatever, accepting him not as a suspicious baggage, a murderous item. Oh, no, quite the contrary only as a suspended animation case was he considered. Not as a dangerous man at all, far from it. Of course, cried McClure, grinning. You didn't know where to go, whom to turn to. It is all quite incredible to you. Yes. I had a feeling you'd be there at the morgue tonight, said McClure happily. Oh? Lantry stiffened. Yes. Can't explain it. But you, how shall I put it, Ancient Americans, you had funny ideas on death. And you were among the dead so long, I felt you'd be drawn back by the accident, by the doll. It's not very logical. Silly, in fact, it's just a feeling. I hate feelings, but there it was. I came on a, I guess you'd call it a hunch, wouldn't you? You might call it that. And there you were. There I was, said Lantry. Are you hungry? I've eaten. How did you get around? I hitchhiked. You what? People gave me rides on the road. Remarkable. I imagine it sounds that way. He looked at the passing houses. So this is the era of space travel, is it? Oh, We've been traveling to Mars for some 40 years now. Amazing. And those big Funnels, those towers in the middle of every town. Those? Haven't you heard? The incinerators. Oh, of course, they hadn't anything of that sort in your time. Had some bad luck with them. An explosion in Salem and one here. All in the 48-hour period. You looked as if you were going to speak. What is it? I was thinking, said Lanfrey. How fortunate I got out of my coffin when I did. I might well have been thrown into one of your incinerators and burned up. That would have been terrible, wouldn't it have? Quite. Lantry toyed with the dials on the beetle dash. He wouldn't go to Mars. His plans were changed. If this fool simply refused to recognize an act of violence when he stumbled upon it, then let him be a fool. If they didn't connect the two explosions with the man from the tomb- All well and good. Let them go on deluding themselves. If they couldn't imagine someone being mean and nasty and murderous, heaven help them. He rubbed his hands with satisfaction. No, no. No Martian trip for you as yet, Lantry lad. First, we'll see what can be done boring from the inside. Plenty of time. The incinerators can wait an extra week or so. One has to be subtle, you know. Any more immediate explosions might cause quite a ripple of thought. McClure was gambling wildly on. Of course, you don't have to be examined immediately. You'll want a rest. I'll put you up at my place. Thanks. I don't feel up to being probed and pulled. Plenty of time in a week or so. They drew up before a house and climbed out. You'll want to sleep, naturally. I've been asleep for centuries. Be glad to stay awake. I'm not a bit tired. Good. McClure led them into the house. He headed for the drink bar. A drink will fix us up. You have one, said Lantry. Later, for me. I just want to sit down. By all means, sit. McClure mixed himself a drink. He looked around the room, looked at Lantry, paused for a moment with a drink in his hand, tilted his head to one side, and put his tongue in his cheek. Then he shrugged and stirred the drink. He walked slowly to a chair and sat, sipping the drink quietly. He seemed to be listening for something. There were cigarettes on the table, he said. Thanks. Lantry took one and lit it and smoked it. He did not speak for some time. Lantry thought, I'm taking this all too easily. Maybe I should kill and run. He's the only one that has found me yet. Perhaps this is all a trap. Perhaps we're simply sitting here waiting for the police, or whatever in hell they use for police these days. He looked at McClure. No. They weren't waiting for police. They were waiting for something else. McClure didn't speak. He looked at Lantry's face and he looked at Lantry's hands. He looked at Lantry's chest a long time with easy quietness. He sipped his drink. He looked at Lantry's feet. Finally, he said, Where'd you get the clothing? I asked someone for clothes and they gave these things to me. Darned nice of them. you find that's how we are in this world. All you have to do is ask. McClure shut up again. His eyes moved. Only his eyes, and nothing else. Once or twice, he lifted his drink. A little clock ticked somewhere in the distance. Tell me about yourself, Mr. Lantry. Nothing much to tell. You're modest, hardly. You know about the past. I know nothing of the future, or I should say today and day before yesterday. You don't learn much in a coffin. McClure did not speak. He suddenly sat forward in his chair and then leaned back and shook his head. They'll never suspect me, thought Landry. They aren't suspicious. They simply can't believe in a dead man walking. Therefore, I'll be safe. I'll keep putting off the physical checkup. They're polite. They won't force me. Then, I'll work it so I can get to Mars. After that, the tombs in my own good time. And the plan. God, how simple. How naive these people are. McClure sat across the room for five minutes. A coldness had come over him. The color was very slowly going from his face, as one sees the color of medicine vanishing as one presses the bulb at the top of a dropper. He leaned forward, saying nothing, and offered another cigarette to Landry. Thanks, Landry took it. McClure sat deeply back into his easy chair. His knees folded one over the other. He did not look at Lantry, and yet somehow did. The feeling of weighing and balancing returned. McClure was like a tall, thin master of hounds, listening for something that nobody else could hear. There are little silver whistles you can blow that only dogs can hear. McClure seemed to be listening acutely, sensitively, for such an invisible whistle. Listening with his eyes, and with his half-opened, dry mouth, and with his aching, breathing nostrils. Lantry sucked the cigarette, sucked the cigarette, sucked the cigarette. And as many times, blew out, blew out, blew out. McClure was like some lean, red-shagged hound, listening and listening, with a slick slide of eyes to one side, with an apprehension in that hand that was so precisely microscopic that one only sensed it. As one sensed the invisible whistle, with some part of the brain deeper than eyes or nostril or ear. McClure was all chemist's scale, all antennae. The room was so quiet, the cigarette smoke made some kind of invisible noise rising to the ceiling. McClure was a thermometer, a chemist's scales, a listening hound, a litmus paper, an antennae, all these. Lantry did not move. Perhaps the feeling would pass. It had passed before. McClure did not move for a long while. And then... Without a word, he nodded at the sherry decanter, and Lantry refused as silently. They sat looking, but not looking at each other, again and away, again and away. McClure stiffened slowly. Lantry saw the color getting paler in those lean cheeks, and the hand tightening on the sherry glass, and a knowledge come at last, to stay, never to go away, into the eyes. Lantry did not move, he could not. All of this was of such a fascination that he wanted only to see, to hear, what would happen next. It was McClure's show from here on in. McClure said, At first I thought it was the finest psychosis I have ever seen. You. I mean, I thought, he's convinced himself, Lantry's convinced himself, he's quite insane, he's told himself to do all these little things. McClure talked as if in a dream and continued talking and didn't stop. I said to myself, he purposely doesn't breathe through his nose. I watched your nostrils, Lantry. The little nostril hairs never once quivered in the last hour. That wasn't enough. It was a fact I filed. It wasn't enough. He breathes through his mouth, I said, on purpose. And then I gave you a cigarette and you sucked and blew, sucked and blew. None of it ever came out your nose. I told myself, well, that's all right. He doesn't inhale. Is that terrible? Is that suspect? All in the mouth, all in the mouth. And then I looked at your chest. I watched. It never moved up or down, it did nothing. He's convinced himself, I said to myself. He's convinced himself about all this. He doesn't move his chest except slowly. When he thinks you're not looking, that's what I told myself. The words went on in the silent room, not pausing, still in a dream. And then I offered you a drink, but you don't drink. And I thought, well, he doesn't drink, I thought. Is that terrible? And I watched and watched you all this time. Lantry holds his breath. He's fooling himself. But now, yes, now, I understand it quite well. Now I know everything the way it is. Do you know how I know? I do not hear breathing in the room. I wait, and I hear nothing. There is no beat of heart or intake of lung. The room is so silent. Nonsense, one might say. But I know. At the incinerator, I know. There is a difference. You enter a room where a man is on a bed, and you know immediately whether he will look up and speak to you, or whether he will not speak to you ever again. And laugh if you will, but one can tell. It is a subliminal thing. It is the whistle the dog hears when no human hears. It is the tick of a clock that has ticked so long one no longer notices. Something is in a room when a man lives in it. Something is not in the room when a man is dead in it. McClure shut his eyes a moment. He put down his sherry glass. He waited a moment. He took up his cigarette and puffed it, and then put it down in a black tray. I am alone in this room, he said. Lantry did not move. You are dead, said McClure. My mind does not know this. It is not a thinking thing. It is a thing of the senses and the subconscious. At first I thought, this man thinks he is dead, risen from the dead, a vampire. Is that not logical? Would not any man, buried as many centuries, raised in a superstitious, ignorant culture, Think likewise of himself once risen from the tomb? Yes, that is logical. This man has hypnotized himself and fitted his bodily functions so that they would in no way interfere with his self-delusion, his great paranoia. He governs his breathing. He tells himself, I cannot hear my breathing, therefore I am dead. His inner mind censors the sound of breathing. He does not allow himself to eat or drink. These things he probably does in his sleep with part of his mind, hiding the evidences of this humanity from his deluded mind at other times. McClure finished it. I was wrong. You are not insane. You are not deluding yourself nor me. This is all very illogical and, I must admit, almost frightening. Does that make you feel good? To think you frighten me? I have no label for you. You're a very odd man, Lantry. I'm glad to have met you. This will make an interesting report indeed. Is there anything wrong with me being dead? Said Lantry. Is it a crime? You must admit it's highly unusual. But still now. Is it a crime? Asked Lantry. We have no crime. No criminal court. We want to examine you naturally to find out how you have happened. It is like that chemical which one minute is inert, the next is living cell. Who can say where, what happened to what? You are that impossibility. It is enough to drive a man quite insane. Will I be released when you are done fingering me? You will not be held. If you do not wish to be examined, you will not be but I am hoping you will help by offering us your services. I mind," said Lantry. But tell me, said McClure, what were you doing at the morgue? Nothing. I heard you talking when I came in. I was merely curious. You're lying. That is very bad, Mr. Lantry. The truth is far better. The truth is, is it not, that you are dead and being the only one of your sort, were lonely. Therefore, you killed people to have company. How does that follow? McClure laughed. Logic, my dear fellow. Once I knew you were really dead a moment ago, really. A, what do you call it? A vampire? Silly word. I tied you immediately to the incinerator blasts. Before that, there was no reason to connect you. But once the one piece fell into place, the fact that you were dead, then it was simple to guess your loneliness, your hate, your envy, all of the tawdry motivations of a walking corpse. It took only an instant then to see the incinerators blown to blazes, and then to think of you, among the bodies at the morgue, seeking help, seeking friends and people like yourself to work with. You're too damned smart. Lantry was out of the chair. He was halfway to the other man when McClure rolled over and scuttled away, flinging the sherry decanter. With a great despair, Lantry realized that, like a damned idiot, he had thrown away his one chance to kill McClure. He should have done it earlier. It had been Lantry's one weapon, his safety margin. If people in a society never killed each other, they never suspected one another. You could walk up to any one of them and kill him. Come back here! Lantry threw the knife. McClure got behind a chair. The idea of flight, of protection, of fighting, was still new to him. He had part of the idea, but there was still a bit of luck on Lantry's side if Lantry wanted to use it. Oh no, said McClure, holding the chair between himself and the advancing man. You want to kill me. It's odd, but true. I can't understand it. You want to cut me with that knife or something like that, and it's up to me to prevent you from doing such an odd thing. I will kill you. Lantry let it slip out. He cursed himself. That was the worst possible thing to say. Lantry lunged across the chair, clutching at McClure. McClure was very logical. It won't do you any good to kill me. You know that. They wrestled and held each other in a wild, toppling shuffle. Tables fell over, scattering articles. You remember what happened in the morgue? I don't care, screamed Lantry. You didn't raise those dead, did you? I don't care, cried Lantry. Look here, said McClure reasonably. There will never be any more like you, ever. There's no use. Then I'll destroy all of you, all of you, screamed Lantry. And then what? You'll still be alone, with no more like you about. I'll go to Mars. They have tombs there. I'll find more like myself. No, said McClure. The executive order went through yesterday. All of the tombs are being deprived of their bodies. They'll be burned in the next week. They fell together to the floor. Lantry got his hands on McClure's throat. Please, said McClure. Do you see? You'll die. What do you mean? Cried Lantry. Once you kill all of us and you're alone, you'll die. The hate will die. That hate is what moves you, nothing else. That envy moves you, nothing else. You'll die, inevitably. You're not immortal. You're not even alive. You're nothing but a moving hate. I don't care, screamed Lantry, and began choking the man, beating his head with his fists, crouched on the defenseless body. McClure looked up at him with dying eyes. The front door opened. Two men came in. I say, said one of them, what's going on, a new game? Lantry jumped back and began to run. Yes, a new game, said McClure, struggling up. Catch him and you win. The two men caught Lantry. We win, they said. Let me go, Lantry thrashed, hitting them across their faces, bringing blood. Hold him tight, cried McClure. They held him. A rough game, what? One of them said. What do we do now? The beetle hissed along the shining road. Rain fell out of the sky and a wind ripped at the dark green wet trees. In the beetle, his hands on the half wheel, McClure was talking. His voice was a susurrant, a whispering, a hypnotic thing. The two other men sat in the back seat. Lantry sat, or rather lay in the front seat, his head back, his eyes faintly open. The glowing green light of the dash dials showing on his cheeks. His mouth was relaxed. He did not speak. McClure talked quietly and logically about life and moving, about death and not moving, about the sun and the great sun incinerator, about the emptied tomb yard, about hatred and how hate lived and made a clay man live and move, and how illogical it all was. It all was. It all was. One was dead, was dead, was dead. That was all, all, all. One did not try to be otherwise. The car whispered on the moving road. The rain spatted gently on the windshield. The men in the back seat conversed quietly. Where were they going, going? to the incinerator, of course. Cigarette smoke moved slowly up on the air, curling and tying into itself in gray loops and spirals. One was dead and must accept it. Lantry did not move. He was a marionette, the strings cut. There was only a tiny hatred in his heart, and his eyes, like twin coals, feeble. Flowing, fading I am Poe, he thought I am all that is left of Edgar Allan Poe And I am all that is left of Ambrose Beers And all that is left of a man named Lovecraft I am a grey night bat with sharp teeth And I am a square black monolith monster I am Osiris, and Baal, and Set. I am the Necronomicon, the Book of the Dead. I am the House of Usher, falling into flame. I am the Red Death. I am the man mortared into the catacomb with a cask of Amontillado. I am a dancing skeleton. I am a coffin, a shroud a lightning bolt reflected in an old house window. I am an autumn empty tree. I am a rapping, flinging shutter. I am a yellowed volume turned by a claw hand. I am an organ played in an attic at midnight. I am a mask, a skull mask, behind an oak tree on the last day of October. I am a poison apple, bobbling in a water tub for child noses to bump at, for child teeth to snap. I am a black candle, lighted before an inverted cross. I am a coffin lid, a sheet with eyes, a footstep on a black stairwell, I am Dunsinay and Machen and I am the legend of Sleepy Hollow. I am the monkey's paw, and I am the phantom rickshaw. I am the cat and the canary, the gorilla, the bat. I am the ghost of Hamlet's father on the castle wall. All of these things am I. And now these last things Will be burned While I lived They still lived While I moved and hated And existed They still existed I am all That remembers them I am all of them That still goes on And will not Go on After tonight Tonight All of us, Poe and Beers and Hamlet's father, we burn together. They will make a big heap of us and burn us like a bonfire, like things of Guy Fawkes' day, gasoline, torchlight, cries and all. And what a wailing we will put up. The world will be clean of us, but in our going we shall say, Oh... What is the world like? Clean of fear. Where is the dark imagination from the dark time? The thrill and the anticipation. The suspense of old October gone. Never more to come again. Flattened and smashed and burned by the rocket people. By the incinerator people. Destroyed and obliterated. To be replaced by doors that open and close and lights that go on or off without fear. If only you could remember how once we lived, what Halloween was to us, and what Poe was, and how we gloried in the dark morbidities. One more drink, dear friends, of Amontillado before the burning. All of this, all, exists, but in one last brain on earth. Earth. A whole world dying tonight. One more drink, pray. Here we are, said McClure. The incinerator was brightly lighted. There was quiet music nearby. McClure got out of the beetle, came around to the other side. He opened the door. Lantry simply lay there. The talking and the logical talking had slowly drained him of life. He was no more than wax now, with a small glow in his eyes. This future world, how the men talked to you, how logically they reasoned away your life. They wouldn't believe in him. The force of their disbelief froze him. He could not move his arms or his legs. He could only mumble senselessly, coldly, eyes flickering. McClure and the two others helped him out of the car, put him in a golden box, and rolled him on a roller table into the warm, glowing interior of the building. I am Edgar Allan Poe. I am Ambrose Bierce. I am Halloween. I am a coffin, a shroud, a monkey's paw, a phantom, a vampire. Yes, yes, said McClure quietly over him. I know, I know. The table glided. The walls swung over him and by him. The music played. You are dead. You are logically dead. I am Usher, I am the Maelstrom, I am the manuscript found in a bottle, I am the pit, and I am the pendulum, I am the tell-tale heart, I am the raven, nevermore, nevermore. Yes, said McClure, as they walked softly. I know. I am in the catacomb, cried Lantry. Yes, the catacomb. Said the walking man over him I am being chained to a wall And there is no bottle of Amontillado here Cried Lantry weakly Eyes closed Yes Someone said There was movement The flame door opened Now Someone is mortaring up the cell Closing me in Yes I know The golden box slid into the flame-lock. I am being walled in. A very good joke indeed. Let us be gone. A wild scream and much laughter. We know. We understand. The inner flame-lock opened. The golden coffin shot forth into flame. For the love of God, Montressor! For the love of God! This is BJ Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Pillar of Fire, Part 2 of 2, by Ray Bradbury. If you have enjoyed this book, please visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and sign up to be a financial supporter. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook. You'll be glad you did. Thank you for joining me today. And allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands.